Chapter 7. We must render appropriate service. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, Romans 13.7. As we saw in chapter 2, God has established a bottom-up system of multiple hierarchies, church, state, and family. This means that we must always be obedient where obedience is required by God's law. The appeals court system of Exodus 18 is to be our guide. We are free men only when we obey God, and we must subject our actions to scrutiny by lawful, God-ordained, covenantal authorities in church, state, and family. The Bible directs us to submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right, 1 Peter 2.13. While Peter has civil authority in mind here, this text is inclusive enough to include family and church authorities. As Bible-believing Christians, we must always remember that when we speak of authority, we mean more than civil authority. The family has real authority that it exercises over its members. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, Ephesians 6.1. The symbol of authority is the rod of correction. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 13.24 It is in the family that children ought to learn the basics of biblical authority and its relationship to church authority. The authority that an employer has over an employee and the authority the police have over citizenry within the confines of the law. The church has real authority to discipline members. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 18, 15-18. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to put ecclesiastical authority on equal par with the civil courts. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11. The symbol of the church's authority is the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19. As citizens of political jurisdictions, Christians must submit themselves to those who rule because God has established them in their positions of authority by his own sovereign will, Romans 13, 1. Civil rulers, as well as family and ecclesiastical rulers, are called ministers of God. The word minister in Romans 13, 4 is the same word used for deacon, servant, see 1 Timothy 3.8. The symbol of the civil magistrate's authority is the sword, Romans 13.4. The symbol of the parent's authority is the rod. Resisting tyranny. Rulers should not be cursed by the people. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people, because he represents God, Exodus 22.28, compare Romans 13.1. This does not mean, however, that the sinful practices and policies of rulers either represent God or should go unnoticed and therefore unchallenged, compare Mark 6.18. Moreover, Christian citizens are under obligation to 
Disobey those laws that prohibit worship and the proclamation of the gospel. Daniel 3, Acts 4, 18, 529. In addition, a law that forces people to commit a crime, such as murder, must also be disobeyed. Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Jesus made it clear that evil rulers must be exposed publicly as evil rulers. Compare Luke 13:32. The Bible shows that resistance to tyranny is legitimate and often commanded. Old Testament examples. The Hebrew midwives were commanded by the king of Egypt to put to death all the male children being born to the Hebrew women. Exodus 1:15 through 16. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed the edict of the king, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Verse 17. God shows his approval of their actions. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied, and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. Verse 20 through 21. Jochebed, Moses' mother, also disobeyed the edict of the king by hiding her child and later creating a way of escape so he could not be murdered by the king's army. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Verse 3. Jochebed even deceived Pharaoh's daughter into believing that she was in no way related to the child. Verse 7 through 9. Rahab hid the spies of Israel and lied about their whereabouts. When a route for escape became available, she led them out another way from that of the pursuing soldiers. She is praised by two New Testament writers for her actions. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Hebrews 11.31 Rahab is listed with Abraham as one whose faith was reflected in her works. And in the same way as Abraham, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James 2. 25. By sending the spies out by another way, she subverted the king's desire to capture the spies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to follow the command of the king to worship the golden statue. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Daniel 3.12. When the three were thrown into the furnace, the angel of the Lord came to their aid. Verse 25. King Darius signed a document that prohibited anyone from making a petition to any god or man besides himself. Daniel 6.7 Anyone refusing to obey the order shall be cast into the lion's den. Verse 7 Daniel refused to obey. The Bible states that Daniel went out of his way to disobey the order. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before God, as he had been doing previously. Verse 10. New Testament Examples The New Testament has similar accounts of resistance to tyranny. When Peter and John were ordered by the rulers and elders of the people to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, Acts 4.18, the two apostles refused to follow the prohibition. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Verses 19 through 20. Peter and John could not stop speaking what they had seen and heard because they had been commanded by Jesus to preach in his name. Compare Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Acts 1, 8, 1 Corinthians 9, 16.
On another occasion, some of the apostles were arrested for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. Again, they were put in a public jail, Acts 5.18. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and commanded them to disobey the rulers of Israel. Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of life, verse 20. When the apostles again were confronted with the command not to preach and teach, their response was quick and sure. We must obey God rather than men, verse 29. We must render appropriate service. The apostles' obedience to God conflicted with the laws of the state. This resulted in the first apostolic death. Now about that time, Herod the king, Agrippa I, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death, Acts 12, 1-2. Peter was later arrested for similar crimes against the state, verse 3. God, at least, does not show his disapproval of rebellion against tyrants in these specific cases. He even sent one of his angels to release Peter from prison, verses 6-8. through eight. There are several such cases where divine assistance released outspoken Christians from the hands of the state. Thus, there can be no question of the legality of resistance to evil civil magistrates, but the Bible always specifies that such resistance is not to be autonomous, self-law, but rather based on God's call through another lawful authority, such as a local church, a local civil magistrate, or parents. This is now unfamiliar doctrine of the Protestant Reformation called the doctrine of interposition. John Calvin articulated it in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, Chapter 20, Sections 22 through 32. It is also one of the legal justifications for the American Revolution. Praying for Civil Servants Our rulers need the prayers of Christians, first, to give them the support for the difficult tasks that surely burden them. The work of the civil magistrate is multifaceted. There are constant pressures that weigh heavily on the office of each civil representative. A minister in the civil sphere must keep his own house in order as well as the house of state. Family responsibilities are often neglected for the supposed urgency of civil affairs. There is the constant barrage of special interest groups wanting to turn the civil sphere of government into a vehicle to engineer society through power and coercion. The temptation to appease these groups is great. Second, to have God change their minds when they stray from the principles of Scripture. I can remember talking with a congressman about the abortion issue. He told me that he would not change his mind no matter what argument he heard. This is certainly presumption and arrogance. The Christian is assured that God is in control of the king's heart. The king's heart is like the channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes, Proverbs 21.1. There is a biblical precedence for this attitude. Pharaoh would not listen to the arguments of Moses. God made Pharaoh a believer, Exodus 3 through 15. Third, to give them wisdom in applying the absolutes of God's word to civil situation. This is Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings 3. Fourth, to pray for a well-ordered state so that the church of Jesus Christ is protected and given freedom in preaching the gospel, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. The state must protect the Christian religion. Any obstacle that would jeopardize the preaching of the word of God and carrying out the Great Commission must be removed by civil government. The Apostle Paul instructs Christians to pray for those who rule so that we Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, 1 Timothy 2, 2. In another place, Paul appeals to the civil magistrate for protection from those who were threatening the Christian religion, and in particular, his own life, Acts 23, 12-31, compare 25, 11. This all means that the civil government cannot be religiously neutral. 
If the Christian religion is not protected and made foundational, then some other religion will be, usually a state religion that degenerates into paganism. The state must go beyond mere toleration, the acceptance of all religions, as long as those religions do not conflict with the operations of the state, and maintain religious freedom for Christian churches. Instructing Civil Rulers Jesus told his early disciples that they would be brought before governors and kings for his sake, Matthew 10:18. The Apostle Paul declared, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9:16. When Paul was brought before the civil officials of Rome, he was obligated, for he was under compulsion by God to preach the gospel. King Agrippa was confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ and responded by saying, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Acts 26:28. Paul responds by saying, I would to God, literally I pray, that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Verse 29. It is not enough to have conservative rulers who merely follow after the traditions of men. Christians should be working for Christian leaders whose lives are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and who seek to make the word of God the law of the land. Moreover, Christians must preach the whole counsel of God to all men, especially to civil rulers, to whom much has been given and of whom much will be required. Civil governments have the responsibility to punish evildoers and promote the good. The task of civil government at all levels is to exercise its authority in its jurisdiction and settle disputes between conflicting jurisdictions. When disputes and or crimes are committed, the state must act swiftly and justly. The standard of judgment is the word of God. For it, the God-ordained authority, is a minister of God to you for good, Romans 13.4. Notice that Paul declares that the state is a minister to you for good. Paul has a biblical moral order in mind when he speaks about the operation of the state as minister. In the Old Testament, the priests, who were experts in the law of God, instructed the king on how he should apply the details of the law to various civil issues, Deuteronomy 17. Unfortunately, the church no longer sees its calling as prophetic. Of course, there are those in civil sphere who despise the absolutes of God's word and anyone who would hold them accountable. Pursuing Peace Peace can only be realized through the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Genuine and lasting peace will not come through law, force, political promises, or compromise. The elimination of poverty, the establishment of a one-world human government, or the military threat of mutual assured destruction. Mad. On the last point, see the book in the biblical blueprint series, The Chariots of God. To pray for peace, as we are instructed to, to do, can be no substitute for the preaching of the gospel so that the nations are discipled according to the word of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 20. Wars do not come because of environmental factors. Rather, they are the result of man's inherent sinfulness. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James 4, 1 through 2. If this is true of the Christian community, should we expect anything less among non-Christians? Humanist institutions deny the reality of sin. Therefore, they believe that man can save himself, given enough time, money, technology, and education. The following is an excerpt from the preamble to the Charter of the United Nations. It is an example of man's attempt at peace without Christ. 
We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, to unite our strength, to maintain international peace and security, and to ensure by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods that armed force shall not be used, save in the common interest, have resolved to combine our efforts to accomplish these aims. Peace, then, comes by and through the efforts of man. Of course, peace is defined in man's terms. The peace that the Lord wants us to pray for and promote is his peace, not peace as men define it. Jesus said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. The word of God does not place the absence of physical conflict or war as the highest value, but rather it recognizes legitimate reasons for men engaging in war, just grounds for defending family members, neighbors, property, and the nation. Rendering to Caesar Because civil governments are ordained by God and act as service institutions, for they are ministers of God, Romans 13.4, they are in need of tax money to pay for the rendered services. Jesus states that Caesar is due tax money because he offers them protection against foreign enemies. Caesar renders a service. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, Matthew 22.21. Jesus certainly was not endorsing the way Caesar governed in all cases, but he was at least upholding the biblical institution of civil government and its authority to limited taxation. Of course, those things that are Caesar's are not his by edict. Rather, they fall within the parameters of God's ordination of Caesar's jurisdiction. Jesus was not giving carte blanche authority to Caesar as the civil representative of the state. But what about those who maintain that the state is taking more than its God-ordained share? Should we still pay the tax? We can afford to pay. If we are faithful, God will provide. When Peter asked about the tax, Jesus provided a fish with a coin in its mouth, Matthew 17:24 through 27. Christians are on the winning side. In effect, we are paying the taxes to ourselves. We are maintaining an orderly society for the day when Christians will faithfully carry out the dominion mandate. Of course, once Christian dominion is a growing reality, the need for taxes will decrease because the state will once again be a protector and not a provider. Some nations tax over 100% of income. While we should not be satisfied with our tax rate, we should thank God that it's not worse. At every opportunity, we should work to cut taxes and reduce expenditures. There are more significant battles to fight, for example, abortion, church-state relationship, the building up of the church and family, and Christian education. For the most part, the courts are stacked against the tax protester. What happens if the court rules against you? You will still have to pay the tax as well as penalties and interest. You might even lose your house. This says nothing about what might happen to your family if you are put in jail for a year or two. I want to make it clear that there are certain non-negotiable items that the Christian cannot compromise on. These were discussed earlier in the chapter. Nowhere in scripture is it a sin to pay a tax under compulsion. For the Romans, lordship was a personified in the emperor. For the Jew, therefore, paying taxes was believed to be an acknowledgement of the Roman gods. This is made clear by the stamp of the emperor's face on the coin of the realm. Tiberius, Caesar, Divi, Og, Usti, F. Phileus, Augustus, or in translation, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the deified Augustus. The Jews knew whose coin it was. It was used to pay taxes, and it was the medium of exchange throughout the Roman world. 
Israel participated in the empire. It benefited from roads, a Mediterranean sea free of pirates, and a common silver currency unit. Why then should the Jews refuse to pay taxes to the state that provided these benefits? The Jewish leaders were collaborators with the Roman authorities. Why shouldn't they pay the tax to their supporters? Why not admit that Caesar was the rightful civil ruler? It was from him that they derived their own civil authority. But the Jews, like so many tax protesters of our day, did not want to admit how economically dependent they had become on Caesar. They wanted these benefits free of charge. They also did not want to admit that God had once again brought them under historical judgment, just as he had in the days of the judges, with the invasion by Assyria and their captivity in Babylon. They had become spiritual rebels, as they proved when they crucified Jesus. Oppressive taxation always indicates that the people in general have rejected the God of the Bible. High taxes are a judgment of God, just like military defeats, pestilence, and economic crises. The only way to overthrow political oppression through taxation is to repent before God and acknowledge that He alone is Savior, Lord, and King. But what of the faithful? They know that the state is not God. Two points should be kept in mind. First, it may be that many Christians may not believe that the state is God. They may, however, act as if it is. Second, those Christians who do not believe that the state is God or act as if it is are not admitting the state is God by paying a tax. Scripture tells us that, by nature, the state or anything else is not God, Galatians 4.8. We pay the tax for convenience sake, Romans 13.5, lest we give them offense, Matthew 17.27. The faithful Christian works for the day when the state will stop acting as a God and the people will stop living as if the state is a God. Supporting Godly Leadership The people have the responsibility to support godly leadership. Moses chose leaders who had already come through the ranks of family, business, and community leadership. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. Deuteronomy 1.13 The responsibility for choosing godly leaders rests with the people. Moses then chose from those presented to him as worthy leaders. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties and of tens, and officers for your tribes. 115. Judges were chosen with the same ethical and experiential considerations. 116 and 17. In time, however, Israel rejected this procedure and chose a different standard for determining leadership. An autonomous, auto equals self, namos equals law, choice was made. The people wanted a king like all the nations, someone who would meet their needs rather than God's requirements. 1 Samuel 8.5 They rejected biblical law and voted for the law of the nations as a distorted law that put man at the center of lawmaking. God warned them that such an allegiance would bring only tyranny, despotism, and eventual slavery, verses 10 through 18. The rejection of biblical law resulted in the state determining what is right and wrong. Long term, the state is the law. All those who reject the king's laws are either killed or enslaved, 1 Kings 12, 6 through 15. Today, Christians have the freedom and duty to vote for responsible leadership using the standard of God's law as the measuring device for their political choice. By the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked is it torn down, Proverbs 11.11. There is a direct relationship between those who rule and the condition of the nation. 
When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Proverbs 29.2 The people chose a king like all the nations. God gave them what they wanted. Christians who refuse to vote for whatever reason are getting what their non-vote brings. Qualified to lead the qualifications for leadership are ethical and practical. That is, they are to have some leadership experience in the family, church, school, or business world. Rulers must be men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, Exodus 18.21. The standard by which they are to rule is not to be their own, and no amount of monetary or political gain will move them from their allegiance to God and his word. They are to fear God. This is the ethical dimension. The Apostle Paul builds on these principles when he sets forth the qualifications of leadership in the church. Ethical considerations abound. Self-government must first be manifested in a potential leader. Leaders must be able to control their own appetites, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. That is, they must be self-disciplined in all their affairs. Paul draws on the Old Testament system of government that applied to both church and state, and he carries these principles to the New Testament people of God. In addition to ethical qualifications, there are practical considerations as well. The ethical leads to the practical. The individual who is scrupulous in personal, family, and business affairs will gain positions of leadership where experience is cultivated. Those who are faithful in small things and ethical evaluation will be entrusted with greater responsibilities, a practical result, Matthew 25:23. This is why the young are discouraged from holding positions of authority without some supervision or accountability. New converts are susceptible to conceit because they have not gained the needed maturity to work out the implications of their new faith in Christ. 1 Timothy 3.6 Jethro's advice to Moses suggests that able men must rule. Exodus 18.21 Ability is cultivated through time as the Word of God is applied to life situations. Of course, there are rare exceptions to this general rule. Timothy is told, let no one look down on your youthfulness, 1 Timothy 4.12. Instead, he is to conduct himself in a way that reflects his faith in ethical terms. His life, ethical behavior, is to be an example, practical behavior, for others to imitate. Civil leadership, like ecclesiastical leadership, is designed to be ministerial. Those in authority must follow the pattern of God as ministers rather than attempt to define the role of governmental leadership in terms of how others rule. Luke 22, 24-30, compare 1 Samuel 8, 5. Summary. The seventh basic principle in the biblical blueprint for civil government is that those who rule in the civil sphere are God's servants. Those under their jurisdiction must serve the civil government faithfully to the extent that the government is serving God faithfully by enforcing God's law, faithful service upward is supposed to ensure faithful service from subordinates. Civil government is not a necessary evil. God established the civil sphere of government like he established the family and church for our good. What is missing in each of these governments is godly leadership. We're often faced with voting for the best of two bad choices. It's hard to find men of principle, men who fear God rather than man. But where is leadership cultivated? The family and church are the training grounds for developing true civil servants. The example of Christ as a servant par excellence is our model. Most governmental leaders are persuaded by their voting constituency. If the people back home want some law passed that will favor their district or them personally, their congressmen will seek out their wishes and vote accordingly. Of course, if it's the majority view. Service in the biblical sense means responsibility.
Today, leadership so-called is really slavery. Politicians are slaves to the will of the people. Their impetus for action is not principle, but pressure. The Bible commands us to submit to every human institution. Governments are established by God, therefore they rule in God's name. This is why rulers should not be cursed by the people. The Bible, however, shows resistance to tyranny is legitimate and is often commanded. Christians are commanded to pray for those in authority over them. Civil rulers must hear from the Christian citizenry. Christians are inheritors of the earth because we are fellow heirs with Christ. We have a stake in the way our world is being run. Peace can only be realized when we recognize that we are first at war with God and need to be reconciled to him. The state has the duty to collect taxes for its biblically defined function. Christians should support qualified Christian leaders. In summary, 1. God has established multiple covenantal authorities. 2. These authorities are structured as appeals courts, as in Exodus 18. 3. Civil authority is only one authority among many. 4. The family and the church can lawfully discipline its members. 5. The symbols of the church's authority are keys to the kingdom. 6. The symbol of the state's authority is the sword. 7. The symbol of the parent's authority is the rod. 8. We must disobey laws that prohibit the public preaching of the gospel. 9. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh. 10. Moses' mother disobeyed Pharaoh and saved Moses in an ark. 11. Rahab disobeyed the laws of Jericho by hiding the spies and lying to the authorities. 12. The three young Israelites disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command to worship his statue. 13. Peter and John refused to obey the order to cease preaching. 14. Civil resistance must not be autonomous. 15. Christians are to pray for rulers, to guide them, to turn their hearts from evil, to judge society in terms of biblical law, and to achieve peace. 16. Christians are to instruct civil rulers in the law. 17. Civil government is required to enforce God's law. 18. Lasting peace can come only through the enforcement of biblical law. 19. Man cannot save himself. 20. The state cannot save man. 21. Civil governments are service institutions, service to God. 22. We owe taxes to the state. 23. Caesar's claims on us are not unlimited, however. 24. High taxes are one way God judges sin. 25. Taxes also support the peacekeeping activities of the state. 26. Leaders should be elected because of their righteous behavior.